Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we ask for hearts, minds, wills that are attuned to yours. So we pray that by your Spirit, you would make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you work through your Word? Amen. So I remember in seminary having to read some some theologians from the early 1900s who, among other things, denied that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They might have conceded, yes, Jesus was a historical person. Jesus died. But there's no need for us as Christians to believe that he literally rose from the dead. What an absurdity. So they would say, it's a great story. What a great example. Like the highest moral example that any of us could ever see. This is what we need to be, people who give ourselves away like Jesus did. All we need is a story. All we need is the example. There's no need for an actual resurrection. I remember being so frustrated when we were reading those guys and trying to be charitable, but reading them. I remember feeling or remembering these kids that I used to work with when I was working with orphans in Romania, these kids who had been abused and abandoned and neglected. I remember thinking about how their lives were legitimately broken, like how much trouble they had having relationships, how much trouble they had making good decisions, how their, even their bodies themselves had been like, broken by the trauma that they'd been through. And I remember thinking, like, what good does a story do for those kids? What kind of story is going to restore their broken families or rewire their brains that have been like muddled by trauma, heal their bodies? What story is going to do that? I remember thinking, they don't need your story. They need the brokenness in their minds and in their bodies to be mended. They need new life. And a story with a beautiful example can't do that. Not if it's only a story. I was thinking about that, and actually that got a little bit heavier for me this week because one of those kids actually died this week. And one of the most like, tragic ways that you could imagine, he died. If all there is is a story about this great man, Jesus, who lived and died, but who didn't rise from the dead, then that kid doesn't have any hope. He's beyond the reach of any story or example. In fact, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then none of us have any hope. This is basically the argument that Paul makes in the first half of our reading. It's hard to say exactly what it is that he's criticizing because he doesn't go into the details, but it seems like there are some people in Corinth who are denying the resurrection of the dead. Now, they're not necessarily denying the resurrection of Christ, but they're denying that there's a resurrection for believers, that there's a resurrection for Christ's people. Whatever the details of that are, Paul very emphatically here says, no, no way. He says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then that means that even Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then our faith means nothing. The dead are just gone. There's no hope for them. And you're still locked in your sins. Those are the consequences for for departing from that. And it's actually even worse for us. Like, So there's no hope for anyone, right? But it's even worse for us 
because we've actually given our lives away for this hope. We've put hope in something that doesn't exist. If this life is all that there is, we ought to have been pursuing it for all it's worth, but we didn't. We gave it up for this hope that's not real. We are of all people the most to be pitied. But then Paul turns it around. He says, no, but Christ has been raised from the dead. And he goes even further. He said, this isn't just one story about one man rising from the dead. Because actually that wouldn't do us any good either. That would just be a story for someone else. He says, Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. Remember what Eric laid out for us really helpfully last week. Paul's writing to this congregation that's full of division. And Paul wants to remind them that all of them who have been baptized into Christ, all of them who are filled with this same Holy Spirit, all of them who take the bread and the wine together, are made into a new body together. And not just any new body, they are made into the body of Christ. And so if they're the body of Christ and Jesus has risen from the dead, then that means that Jesus' resurrection doesn't only belong to him. It's given to them too. That resurrection life is shared. Jesus doesn't rise from the dead alone, but he's the first of many, leading many out of the grave. If it were just Jesus, it would just be a story, at least for us, because it would be something about someone else that doesn't have anything to do with us. But we've been made into a new body, into the body of Christ. And so his resurrection life is given to us. So that's a a first turn that Paul makes, and it's beautiful. He doesn't stop there because the, the beauty, the majesty of the resurrection doesn't actually even end with us. It keeps going. We're not going to be raised to new life in the same broken world that's already full of sin and death. Sin and sickness and death and despair. Try to put all those into the same word. Christ rose from the dead with a mission to subdue all of God's enemies. To put all of creation under the rule and reign of God. And so to do that, he's going to destroy every rule and every authority and every power. He's going to destroy every one of God's enemies. He's going to put everything under his feet. And he's going to take all of that, wrap it in a bow, and give it as a gift to his father that his father can rule. All of this so that at the very end, God can be all and in all. Now, we could sit and we could chew on that for months. What does it mean for God to be all and in all? But my summary for that would be simply that he's going to put everything in its right place before the creator so that God can give himself there freely. Everything that's been broken is going to be restored. All the relationships that are broken, the relationship between us and our God is going to be, will be reconciled. That's the point of the resurrection. Not just some story, some moral example. The point of the resurrection is that God is going to restore all things in Christ so that we can actually share in the life of God in Christ and be in God's presence. That's the point of the resurrection. It's this cosmic scope, this cosmic mission that Christ is on. Now, Paul's going to go on from there on this kind of weird detour about people baptizing the dead uh, that we're not going to go into. So instead, I'm going to preach my second sermon. That was my first one. I even have a second introduction. I usually struggle to have one introduction, but today I have two. So here's the second one. I really do want us to see very specifically, right, because we could think about this cosmic mission of God that's going to happen way far off out in the future and think like, well, that's great, but like, what does that mean? 
I don't know. But what does that mean for us now? What's the point of that now? What do we hold on to? I want us to see what that cosmic mission, everything subjected to the rule and reign of Christ, means for us in our lives now. Very specifically, what would it mean to see that rule and that reign in our hearts? What would it look like for us to be subjected to the authority of God? So Paul says Jesus is going to come back and he's going to destroy every rule and every power and every authority. Like when I hear that, my libertarian anarchist brain thinks first, oh great, evil governments, going to destroy them. And Paul would say, well, yeah, sure. But I mean the things that are actually in charge. So I think, okay, great. Bad corporations, going to destroy them. And Paul would say, no, 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 the things that are actually in charge. So they're great. Okay, the Illuminati, the first order. I don't know. What is it? I think he means the spiritual powers that we can't see. And I think he means the tools and the weapons that those powers use to destroy us. I think he means the sin that takes root in our own hearts. So what are these powers that drive the world? What are these things that take root in our hearts and drive us? They're things like covetousness and jealousy, greed or lust or pride or fear or shame. The things that drive the things that we do, the decisions that we make, the things that we run after. Think about that. How much, might be alarming to think about this, maybe I'm just projecting, how much of your energy goes toward fighting just temptation and distraction? Do you think about how much of your life's energy actually has to go into just simply fighting those things? How much of your energy goes into chasing things that you covet? Or just fighting to justify your pride? Or to convince people that you are something? How much of your energy, how much of your effort has to go into just trying to muster up the will or the discipline to do something that's right when it's hard? How, how much do we put into trying to cover up for ourselves or trying to build our own little kingdoms? How much of our energy is just lost on those things? There's a, there's a line in James where he says, he's talking about a congregation, but I think he also means it in our own hearts. You have all this conflict because your desires are waging war within you. We're people who want conflicting things. We're people who are driven around by our desires and our passions. And so often, we're not even in control of what we want. We're just chasing impulses or running away from things or just trying to feel safe. That list could go on and on. When we think about God's authority, we usually think of that as God's right to tell us what to do or maybe his right to tell us what to stop doing. And it certainly means that, right? It's not, it's not less than that. But what if we thought of the reign of God in our hearts as God's own breaking down of those things that torment us on the inside and pulling them apart? What if we thought of God's rule in our hearts as God taking away the things, purging us, so that our will is no longer in conflict with his. 
so that we are internally actually united, so that we want what God wants. That might sound, this might sound really simplistic, but I don't think the simplicity of it makes it wrong. So don't let the simplicity fool you. I think that the biggest problem in our lives, this is certainly true of me, my biggest obstacle to joy, the biggest hindrance for my relationship with the Lord, is that I simply want things that God doesn't want for me. My will doesn't line up with his. Actually, my will doesn't even line up with my own will. I want things that undermine other things that I want. I can't even agree with myself on the inside. And when we think of God's authority, we really struggle when the things that he would have for us conflict with the things that we desire. Maybe more than we want to admit, very often God destroying evil means actually breaking down things that we've grown to love or want for ourselves. But what we see in this passage and this mission of Jesus rising from the dead to put all of creation under the will of God so that it flourishes. If we look at that, but we look at that very specifically in our own hearts, we see that God's reign, God's rule is not just some imposition of rules. It's not just that God simply wants order. It's that he wants our whole selves to be brought near to him. He wants our will to align with his so that we can flourish. This is what God does when he exercises authority. This is what God does when he rules. This is what he does when he builds his kingdom. He rights wrongs. He heals broken things. He frees captives. He destroys evil. And we tend to think of that in ways that are right about the brokenness of the world, but what about the ways that he does that in our own hearts? What if some of the best news is that God will destroy the things that are broken on your insides? Heal where you are broken on the inside. Free you where you are captive to sin, captive to pride, captive to desires that actually wage war against each other in your heart. Can you think of God's authority like that? Can you think of his rule like that? Can you imagine the peace that would reign in a heart that doesn't have to fight sin any longer? Can you think about the peace that would reign in a heart that simply doesn't have to fight itself any longer? Imagine a heart that has now become so completely under the authority of God that his will has become yours. Because that's the end purpose here. That's why Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Paul talks a lot about the end here, right? He's talking about these things that are going to happen when, when Christ returns, when Christ has put all these things under subjection completely. When Christ's reign over creation and Christ's reign over us is complete. And yeah, we do have to remember that it's only then that it will be complete. And we have to remember that, yeah, in the meantime, there are going to be struggles and fights and things like grief or loneliness or sorrow in the world and in your life. And we have to remember that we will still have to keep battling sin until this is made complete. But in the meantime, I want us to remember that the reign of Christ has already begun. Specifically, I want you to remember that Jesus' reign, even in your heart, is not just some lofty, distant, abstract thing in the future. Because we're in Christ. 
We've been made into a new body. We're filled with the Spirit. And because those things are true, then his rule and his reign, not just in the world but in your heart, is extended to you now. So let's pray and let's long for God's authority to rule in our hearts, for his authority to rule in our families and our friendships, for it to shape the decisions that we make and the goals that we pursue. Let it shape everything that we choose to call good and everything that we choose to call evil. Maybe our prayer just needs to be as simple as this. Lord, help us to love the things that you love. I know it's not easy. It's difficult for the very reason that we need it. Our desires are at war with us. But remember that this isn't a call to just, like, do more. It's not a call to do something new or to figure out something new. Paul will tell us that Jesus is already king. Sin doesn't reign anymore. And he's going to put all things in subjection under his feet, including, and maybe we can say especially, our hearts. Pray that that promised future will take root in us and grow now. Amen.